be with you this morning. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, as we get started today, I need to uh, make a public service announcement, uh, and it's one of the best kinds of public service announcements because it's at my own expense. Uh, I owe uh, Nicole Sanders uh, an apology, uh, a deep, heartfelt apology, because uh, weeks, maybe even, yes, we're, we're, to the mo- we're months ago, uh, Nicole and her son, Tori, went on a trip to Florida. Uh, Tori was able to participate in a gymnastics competition. And Nicole asked me immediately after they got back uh, up here to thank the generosity of this church because there were many people in this room who helped uh, contribute to that trip, helped uh, purchase plane tickets, uh, hotel room, uh, things like that. And so I owe Nicole an apology because it's been uh, like five weeks since she asked me to do that, and I keep forgetting. Uh, and so I wanted to say on behalf of Nicole, thank you uh, to those of you who, who uh, helped her make her way uh, to Florida. Uh, Tori had such a good time on the trip uh, that they uh, were staying in this uh, hotel room, and Tori decided, uh, Tori's uh, like seven, eight years old, something like that, he decided that he wants to go back to that hotel when he gets married for his honeymoon. Uh, he had such a blast, and so uh, uh, they were very, very grateful to so many here who, who helped to make that trip possible in a reality. Uh, well, today we are continuing uh, our preparation, our preparation time for Easter, because Easter is just a few weeks away, and that means that we've got some work to do, because Easter is this announcement uh, that the resurrection of Jesus has taken place, that Jesus uh, is not uh, still dead, but that he is alive and still here among us today. And so uh, we are in a season of Lent, of preparation, of preparing our hearts and minds. In the last couple of weeks, we have been talking about fasting and repentance. And uh, I hope that these are practices that uh, are beneficial to you. Uh, That is the purpose of these uh, practices, is that they will be something that will help you to begin to live the life that Jesus has called us to live today. And that means turning away from things that keep us away from God. That means repenting of the things that we have done in our past uh, that that, uh, don't show that we are living in the life of Jesus today. And so I hope that those are practices that are beneficial to you and useful to you. But today, I want to turn our attention uh, to living that resurrected life, to beginning now, hopefully many of us have been doing this for some time, but to paying special attention to what it means to actually live a resurrected life in our world today. And I think that this is something that our world really desperately needs. It needs people who speak life and not death. Uh, our world needs people who, who are building one another up and encouraging each other, showing them how to live faithfully to what God has called. Rather than uh, uh, judging or, or living in hypocrisy, our world desperately needs people who live like Jesus, people who live a resurrected life. And so as I was preparing for this uh, sermon time, I, I was thinking that the word that I wanted to use to capture this is urgency, uh, that there is an urgent need for us to live this out right now, today. And so as I was thinking about that word urgency, I thought about one of our members uh, who has a special understanding, perhaps, of urgency. And uh, throughout this series, I've been interviewing uh, some folks during the sermon time and asking them what it means to to live this resurrected life. And so today, I want to start our sermon time by inviting Bimpe McMillan to come. uh, And she's a little nervous, so give give her a round of applause. Yeah. Bimpe uh, is, is a wonderful, wonderful uh, member of our church. He's a deacon here at the church. And uh, one of the things that Bimpe understands about living an urgent kind of life is that she had to move to this country from a different part of the world. Uh, and so I'm going to ask her a little bit about what it means uh, and how she understands this urgent need to begin to live in a different place, in a different way. And hopefully uh, it'll be really enlightening. We practiced last night, and let me tell you, uh, 
the rest of the sermon doesn't need to be preached. Uh, uh, this is good stuff. So I'm going to ask Bimpe a couple of questions. Uh, so Bimpe, first of all, tell us where you moved from, uh, how long ago it was. Uh, tell us about your moving experience. Um, hi, everyone. <laughs> so I'm Bimpe. I moved into the United States literally on January 4, 2009. And it was an interesting journey because I'd never left my country ever in my life. I'd never visited any other African country. By the way, I'm from Nigeria, and Nigeria is a country in West Africa. And so I'd never visited any other country, and it was my first time traveling internationally. And so I came straight from Lagos, Nigeria, where I was born and raised, flew to Germany. That was a five-hour flight. And then from Germany, took a flight to Dallas, which was another 10-hour flight. So altogether, it was about 10, 15 hours. Or no, actually 20 hours, you know, altogether. And then so I remember landing in Dallas and remembering that there was just so much I had to learn and so much that I wasn't used to. For example, like the way the dates work here, month, day, and year. I thought that was weird. I'm like, I'm used to day, month, and year. So there are just a couple of things that I had to adjust to. I had to learn how to use a washer and a dryer, you know, so it was just an interesting journey for me coming to the United States. Yeah, so uh, you were immediately immersed in a totally different world, uh, halfway around the world. Uh, you'd never left even uh, Nigeria, so never been to another country, even a neighboring country in Africa. It was a totally new experience, and it was urgent that she began to, to understand what it meant to live here in this place. So I'm uh, interested because you've shared that you're from Lagos, Nigeria, and I know that there are some things that people uh, maybe think about uh, uh, Nigeria or other parts of the world. So help us understand, uh, for those of us who are from the United States of America who maybe haven't done a lot of traveling, uh, what is it uh, that maybe is a pet peeve of yours that when you say something that people automatically assume about where you're from? Don't get me started. <laughs> But the Lord has redeemed me, so I have a lot of um, compassion and faith, and I don't let it get to me anymore. But there are a couple of things that was just very common. I remember being in my master's class in Nigeria, I, I took a, or in um, ACU, I took a master's in accounting, and it was a business ethics class, and so we're supposed to all go around and say our name, say where we're from, and, you know, say something different or unusual about you. And so I remember, you know, going through the ritual, and then the lady next to me looked at me and said, wow, your English is so flawless. And then immediately my eyebrows was like, okay, really? And so in my mind, I was expecting Americans to know a lot about the world outside of them. And so in my head, I was like, well, Nigeria is a former British colony. We speak British English. We speak better English than the Americans. How do you not know that? You know, so, but again, I see it more now as an opportunity to teach people rather than, you know, get angry about it. And another common one is people meet me, they hear I'm from an African country, and then immediately they're like, oh, I have a classmate in Kenya. I do not know your friend in Kenya. Those are like two totally separate worlds. It's almost like meeting Debbie Villarreal. You know, you learn she's from Malaysia, and you're like, oh, I have a friend in the Philippines. She probably doesn't know your friend in the Philippines. <laughs> Those are two totally different places. And then the common one is people thinking Africa is a country rather than a continent. I'm like... It kind of has like 54 countries in there. It's really huge. So those are just little pet peeves here and there. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, okay, I, I'm, I, I'm very, to me, it's very fascinating to hear about the perspective of someone who's uh, coming to a new place. So I'm interested, what were some of your expectations uh, when you were coming here that uh, maybe got, uh, that you saw or maybe that you didn't see but you were expecting to see? What were some of the things uh, about coming to America that you thought were going to happen that you thought were here? 
So I was told that there was an abundance of food in America, and I was looking forward to like the abundance of burgers, the abundance of fries, because you know back home those were more like luxuries. You know, everyone ate a home cooked meal, and if you wanted burgers and fries, you know, it was kind of a luxury. And so I came here, and I was like excited about the abundance. So the quantity is there, but then I was very disappointed in the quality of the food. <laughs> And I'm still very disappointed in the quality, especially the chicken. I'm like, what kind of animal is your chicken from? Because that is not how chicken tastes, you know. So that's been an interesting experience. But I'm very also impressed by the rule of law that exists here. Like, there's just so much law and order. And what I mean by law and order, it's like everything works a certain way. People actually make use of the traffic lights and... You know, I mean, people drive crazy here, but I'm just saying, like, just things work a certain way, and that's different. I'm not used to that, and I actually do like that here. And then I noticed that, like, moving here, like, all the houses looked alike. I wasn't used to that because I'm used to, like, houses all looking different and having some kind of character to it. But then I'm like, everything looks the same here. But, again, I appreciate the organization. That's, that's deep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we are, uh, we are deeply organized here in the States uh, is what I've learned. Uh, okay, so I want to turn uh, the conversation uh, towards a little bit more spiritual uh, components. Uh, and so I want to know uh, what it was like to, when you immersed yourself in a totally different culture, different world, uh, what did you learn about your faith in God when you moved uh, to a, another side of the world? And you, you were 18 at the time, right? 22. 22. Okay, you were 22. What was it like to totally immerse yourself in a new place and have to rely on God? So, I mean, I like that question because that question actually caused me to reflect a lot. So, when I moved here, I attended a Christian school. And so, you know, I grew up a Christian in Nigeria as well. And so, I end up realizing that the foundation is the same. But, and so, we all believe in the risen Christ. But then, the house that the foundation is constructed on is quite different. It doesn't mean one house is better than the other. It's just very different. And so, the modes of worship are totally different. And so for me, I found that it's actually challenging being a Christian in America compared to when I was back home in Nigeria. And it's actually challenging for me to have, like, total dependency on God here in America than when I was back home. And, you know, a lot of reasons come to mind, but, I mean, part of it is I've grown, I'm older, you know, I have kids, so all of that played a factor into it. But then there are other things that made me think, you know, Nigerians are a very, very religious group of people. So everyone practices a certain type of faith, be it Christianity, Islam, traditional worship. And at the end of the day, we all practice a faith that, you know, leads us to the supremacy of God or that, you know, brings us closer to Christ. And so I grew up in that environment where everyone is Christian. So it was, or everyone is practicing a religion. And then going back to the Nigerian Christians, it was rare to find people who were atheists. And so I had never even met one until I moved to the United States, and now I work with two atheists. And so that was different for me. And Christians in Nigeria also involve God in every aspect of their lives. Like, it's not uncommon for you to wake up in the morning with your family, and the first thing you do is pray and have a devotion. And it doesn't end there. Every job I ever had, as soon as we get to work, our boss requires us to have a communal prayer before we even start working. And I remember working at a bank, before we could open the vaults and start, you know, our teller duties, we all had to say a prayer. And if there were Muslims amongst us, they were allowed to also say their own prayer. So we prayed at home, we prayed at work. In schools, I went to a public school, we prayed during assembly. That was a requirement before we started our day. Even down to the names we have, like all our names are required to have a meaning that ties to our faith in God. 
And so my name means completeness in God. My sister's name means, you know, God never fades. My brother's name means God's gift, you know. So I even gave my kids, you know, names that reflect that as well. And so that's all around me. And that actually made me more dependent on God because I'm surrounded by it every day. And I think a lot of it is because of the environment we lived in. I mean, Nigeria is a very politically unstable environment. You know, we don't have a lot of abundance. I mean, we have resources, but they're very grossly mismanaged. And so everyone is trying to survive. Survival mode is like the order of the day. And so compared to being here in America, America has more of a stable environment. And then there's so much abundance that it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking you don't need God. And I think I found myself in that trap a lot, seeing God as an afterthought, rather than putting him at the forefront of my life. Because... I feel like here, a lot of Christians want to control their narratives, and they don't know how to totally surrender to God, whereas back home, total surrender to God was what we had to do to survive. And so I think I'm constantly reminding myself how to merge my two cultures now and remind myself that at the end of the day, no matter the abundance I'm experiencing or that I see in the United States, life without Christ is a hopeless end. Yeah. Uh, man, it's, it, what a challenge to us um, uh, to really start using our life and, and displaying in every moment when we wake up, when we go to work, when we get our p- kids, uh, pick, pick them up from school, to pray, to invite God into every space in our life. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Well, one, one last question, and uh, it's, it's, again, a powerful one. Uh, what are the things uh, that you have learned uh, from God about doing, practicing your faith in the moment. Uh, today, today our, one of our words that we're going to talk about is urgency. So what is, what is an urgent way that we can dis- show our faith, and how have you learned to do that? So when I think of the word urgency, I'm thinking of diligence and intentionality. And this statement might, I'm going to make might be way off, but I've observed, and again, it's just an observation, that many Christians in America don't have a sense of urgency when it comes to the spiritual discipline of prayer. And it's just, again, an observation. Because when I think about my faith back home, we all believed strongly in the power of prayer. It, it ruled our entire world. Like, we prayed about everything because we were told that a prayerless Christian is a powerless Christian. And so even down to the way we dressed, we would wake up in the morning, open our wardrobe for, y'all, it's closets, you know, and look at your wardrobe and be like, Lord, help me pick the outfit I'm going to wear today because I want my outfit to minister life to people. I want my outfit to honor you. I want people to see me and see your light in the way I dress. People might think that's ridiculous, but that's just how much we involve prayer in our lives. And we just prayed about everything. And so we're also taught how to pray. And so we're like, you know, if you're going to pray, you have to pray the way Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And so we start by honoring God and expressing God's supremacy. And then you express your thanksgiving to God for the things you have and the things you don't have. And then you go in to make your request known to God. And then you end it by thanking God again and expressing and acknowledging his supremacy. That's how we're taught to pray. And so no matter what prayer you made, if you didn't follow that order, you were told you were doing it wrong. You know, and so... So for me, at the end of the day, the time to pray is now. It's not when things are difficult. It's not when you hear that a family member has cancer. It's not when you hear that you're going to get fired from your job or that marriage is about to end or, you know, your children are struggling in school. That's not when to pray, when things are difficult. The time to pray is now because we as Christians are called to pray without season. Mm-hmm. Would you guys give Bimpe a hand? Thank you so much, Bimpe.
it's, it's amazing, uh, the urgent need uh, that we have. I hope that you've heard, if nothing else this morning, uh, uh, I, I've got a text that I want us to uh, unpack a little bit, but I hope that you hear uh, that there is an urgent need for us to do this today. Whether things are good or bad, it doesn't matter. Right now, today, there is a need for us to live the life that Christ has called us to right now. Uh, so if you've got a Bible this morning, uh, I want us to turn over to a passage in Luke's gospel again. Uh, Luke chapter 13, we've been spending our time in Luke chapter 13 and 14 the past couple weeks. Uh, if you've got a Bible with you, you can find it there in the pew uh, Bibles in front of you. It's on page 1,619. And so if you want to turn to it there, you can certainly find it as well. Our passage for today uh, is a, a, a bizarre little story followed by a parable that Jesus tells. And uh, this story uh, includes these uh, bizarre details about what has, ha- what has taken place, what has happened in the past. And so I want us to read uh, the first part of this story, and then I want to try to explain uh, these events that Jesus is describing, because they're a little bit odd and, and uh, maybe not familiar to all of us. So uh, this is uh, chapter 13, verse 1 through 5. It says, Some who were present on that occasion told Jesus about the Galileans whom Pilate had killed while they were offering sacrifices. He replied, do you think the suffering of these Galileans proves that they were more sinful than all the other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you change your hearts and lives, you will die just as they did. What about those 18 people who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think that they were more guilty of wrongdoing than everyone else who lives in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you change your hearts and lives, you will die just as they did. Uh, okay, I want us to pause there. We're going to read uh, a little bit more of this passage here in just a second, but uh, this is a, a pretty in-your-face uh, section of Scripture. Jesus uh, is talking about these two historical events that seem to have just happened in the life of, of the people of Israel uh, there in Jerusalem, and he's describing these events, and he's using them as an object lesson. So he describes these two events. The first event is when Pilate uh, finds uh, these Galilean worshipers who have traveled from uh, the northern territory that was once uh, the kingdom of Israel. Uh, they've traveled down uh, to the city of Jerusalem, to the temple, and they're there offering sacrifices. And when they arrive, Pilate decides to send in this group of soldiers to kill them as they're offering their sacrifices. Now, this is a really uh, big deal uh, because when the people of, uh, of Israel came to the temple to offer sacrifices, this was the moment where they connected with God. This was the moment where they felt God's presence around them. And so for Pilate to do this, for Pilate to send these soldiers in uh, to kill these Galileans would be an abomination. It would be uh, unheard of. It would be something that would deeply, deeply disturb everyone who's Jewish who heard about this. Uh, I imagine this was incredibly traumatic for everyone who witnessed it, uh, but not just for those who witnessed it. For those who heard this story, they would automatically think uh, that something has gone desperately and tragically wrong. And so uh, this is a disturbing story, a disturbing account. And there's a couple of reasons why Pilate might have done this, uh, but Jesus gets at the heart of it. Jesus says uh, it's not because of these other reasons. It's uh, the common interpretation that seems to be prevalent is that the people would have thought that it was because these men, these Galilean travelers, were sinful. It's because they have done something wrong, and this is God's righteous judgment and punishment against them. And so this was the common interpretation. So Jesus says, is it because they were more sinful? No, it wasn't because they were more sinful. Jesus pushes back against that common understanding, that common interpretation. He says, it's not because of that. And yet he still uses that story as an object lesson. And yet if we don't change our hearts and lives, Jesus says to his listeners, we will die just as they did. It's a wake-up call. It's, it's an in-your-face message that Jesus says, we have got to begin to change. We have got to begin to follow God fully in every aspect 
of our lives. The second story Jesus uses for the same purpose. Uh, uh, earlier on, uh, it, se- it seems like a tower uh, in the city of Jerusalem had collapsed. And it, during the collapse, it had uh, killed 18 innocent people. They had just been bystanders. They had just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, and this tower collapses and kills them. And again, the common interpretation is that these 18 people must have done something to upset God. That God is angry. God is, is uh, he's unleashing justice upon these 18 people. And Jesus, again, pushes back and says it's not because of their sinfulness. It's not because they did something wrong. But Jesus is going to use that tragic event as an object lesson. If we don't change our hearts and our lives, we will die just as they did. And Jesus continues on after this, and he begins to tell them about the urgency, uh, the urgency that there is in life, the urgency to live a resurrected life right then and there. He tells them this parable starting in verse 6. It says, Jesus told this parable, a man owned a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it, but he found none. He said to his gardener, look, I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree for the past three years, and I've never found any. Cut it down. Why should it continue depleting the soil's nutrients? The gardener responded, Lord, give it just one more year, and I will dig around it and give it fertilizer. Maybe it will produce fruit next year. If not, then you can cut it down. Jesus tells them this parable about this fig tree that doesn't uh, bear any fruit. So what is the purpose of this fig tree if it's not going to bear fruit? And so uh, the owner of the vineyard comes to the gardener and says, let's cut that thing down. Let's get it out of here. Let's get something that will bear fruit and plant it in its place. But the gardener says, let's give it one more year. Let me work on that tree. Let me make sure that the tree uh, has every opportunity to bear fruit before we cut it down and throw it away. Now, if you're following along in Luke's gospel, uh, which we have uh, not been doing, but I do want to reference back because this is a common theme throughout the entire gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke is going to tell this same kind of story in multiple places. And so right at the beginning of the gospel of Luke, uh, if you want to flip over to chapter 3 in in Luke's gospel, uh, John the Baptist is announcing the way of Jesus, that Jesus is coming. And so John the Baptist is going to use the same image, uh, a common image from the day uh, that they would have understood. And he's going to use the image to make a similar point. So in uh, chapter 3 of Luke's gospel in verses 8 and 9, John the Baptist says, produce fruit that shows that you have changed your hearts and lives. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be chopped down and tossed into the fire. So John picks up this same image that Jesus is going to use later, and he says, the time is now. John tells us that the axe is at the root of the tree, as in it's any moment now that the tree is going to be chopped down. The time to act is now. There is an urgent need to bear fruit. And so Jesus picks up on this same story, a story that would have been common. Uh, I want to show you one other place that I, uh, I found that this story exists because it's a common use uh, in, in the ancient world. And so uh, this is a story of a guy by the name of Ahikar. Uh, can I hear you guys say Ahikar? Okay, a couple weeks ago I did this with another name, and I promise I have no idea how to pronounce any of these names. So I'm just making it up, and I'm, uh, I'm teaching you probably the improper pronunciation. But this is a guy by the name of Ahikar, and it's a very similar message, a very similar story. And it reads like this. Ahikar uh, spoke to Nathan thus, Son, thou hast been to me like a palm tree, which has grown with roots on the banks of the river. When the fruit ripened, it fell into the river. And the Lord of the tree said, leave me in this place that in the next year I may bear fruit. The Lord of the tree said, up to this day hast thou been to me useless. In the future, thou wilt not become useful. So this little story that's uh, common in the ancient world, uh, a guy by the name of Ahikar uh, tells Nathan that even if a a tree bears fruit, 
but it falls into the river. It's useless. The fruit must bear fruit for someone. There, there has to be someone who receives the gift of the fruit. Uh, the fruit is not for the tree. It's not for the owner of the vineyard. It's for the one who will eat the fruit. And so if it bears fruit, but it falls into the river and is washed away, it's still useless. So Jesus and John the Baptist, they pick up on this common story and they begin to share with us that there is an urgent need to bear fruit today. The axe is at the root of the tree, ready to chop it down. There is an urgency to living this resurrected life today. But the good news of this is that there is a gardener. Uh, Jesus' parable includes this section about a gardener, the one who will work on the tree, the one who will dig around it and fertilize it. Because when we don't bear fruit, uh, what are we doing? We're not doing anything. We're just taking up the nutrients of the soil. But Jesus, the gardener, says, give me a year. Give me time. I will dig around and I will give the tree everything it needs to bear fruit. So this is, this is the message for today is that Jesus is the gardener working to give us grace. There is an urgent need for each and every one of us to live this resurrected life today. For us to, to begin to, to show others to bear fruit that the Christian way of living, the way that Jesus has taught, is good. That it provides life, it sustains life. But there is grace that the gardener offers us as well. That the gardener, even at this very moment, is working on us, helping us to bear fruit, making sure that we understand what it means to really follow Jesus. As we prepare for Easter in these next couple of weeks, my encouragement to us is for us to bear fruit, for us to live a resurrected life today, for us to show others that when we announce the resurrection of Jesus, that it wasn't just good news then, but that it's still good news today, that we can live resurrected life, life that bears fruit for the sake of those who need life and need their life to be sustained. Church, my question for you today is, what fruit are you bearing? What are the things that others can look at and see that there is life in this place, that there is life in you, that Jesus is still alive and well and working in you? The axe is at the root of the tree. There is an urgent need to live this resurrected life today, right now. So may we be people who live the resurrection as we prepare for Easter, may we be people who show what it means to live as Jesus did right here today, urgently. Here in a moment, we're going to continue our worship. Our elders are going to gather around the room. And uh, if you need prayers today, uh, if there's something that you need uh, prayers, that, something that's causing you pain or anxiety, uh, I would encourage you to come and spend some time in prayer. Uh, if you just want our elders to speak words of life over you, I would encourage you to do that uh, and ask them to, to speak life into you. Uh, if you would like to live this urgent, resurrected life today, if you would like to join with Christ, living as one body with Jesus, I'll be ready to receive you and to talk with you about baptism. And as we do that, would you please stand and worship?